Hi, welcome to Brain Facts. Thanks for listening to this podcast. I'm Samuel Salama, your host and a student fascinated by the brain. This is the place to discuss neuroscience, psychology, and the great mysteries of the mind. So please enjoy this message. Alzheimer's disease. It's an abnormality in our aging processes. It is not normal whatsoever. It's by far the most common cause of dementia, which, as we know, is just a general term for memory loss and cognitive impairment. This disease is both progressive and unfortunately terminal as it degenerates the physical brain and leads to significant mental disability. Now, you're probably wondering, Alzheimer's disease, which we will abbreviate as AD, does anyone know the causes of this? How can we stop it? Well, no one knows what causes AD, but we believe that genes, environment, lifestyle, and overall health may play a role, however. This is currently a very hot topic of research, and hopefully in the near future we will have some wonderful breakthroughs pertaining to Alzheimer's disease in the neuroscientific realm. But despite all the exciting new research, I want to talk to you all about the preclinical period of Alzheimer's, how we divide the stages of AD, and the characteristics of each individual stage. I also hope to answer many of your questions such as, is this disease reversible? And what is the science behind AD diagnosis? To start off, I want to mention that once again, Alzheimer's disease is progressive where symptoms gradually worsen over time. Since this disease is progressive, we try to divide Alzheimer's into three categories or stages. We will refer to these three main stages as early, middle, and late. Although this is our division, there is a seamless continuum between the different AD stages. As a result, it can sometimes be very difficult to distinguish between the different states. One thing we don't really have difficulty making a distinction of is the preclinical period of Alzheimer's disease and the early stage of AD. As the name states, the preclinical period is preclinical. I often think of this as the pre-diagnosis period as well. So we're at the beginning of Alzheimer's disease progression, preclinical, pre-diagnosis, this is our current state. Conceptually speaking, the definition of preclinical AD would theoretically span from the very first degenerative brain lesion to the onset of the first clinical symptoms of AD. Now, that's a lot to comprehend, so let's break it down a bit. Brain lesions in general are a type of damage to any part of the brain. Lesions can most commonly be caused by injury or disease. Note the brain lesions are 100% abnormalities in the brain, and for Alzheimer's, these lesions consistently destroy the brain. Now, with Alzheimer's, many, many, many things are happening within our brains. Let's mention three very important to our understanding. Number one, brain lesions are consistently forming in the brain. Number two, plaque resulting from beta amyloid proteins cover the brain. Number three, the brain shrinks. There is a significant difference in the size of the normal brain compared to that of an Alzheimer's patient. All three of these psychological characteristics help mark the beginning of preclinical Alzheimer's disease. The end of this period is marked by the onset of the first clinical symptoms of AD. So this is when AD becomes most noticeable. 
Overall, changes in the brain begin years before a person shows any signs of disease. And this period is defined as preclinical Alzheimer's disease, where it lasts for many years. At the end of the preclinical period, both physiological changes and noticeable behavioral changes occur. So, we've marked the end of preclinical AD. We're now onto the three clinical periods, beginning with early stage Alzheimer's disease. Since preclinical is also informally referred to as pre-diagnosis, a really valid question we should all be asking ourselves is how do we diagnose Alzheimer's disease? Well, it can be very subjective, but also quite scientific. And one thing I always find fascinating is the progression of science. We've come a very long way in what I would say is an extremely short period of time. Seeing how Alzheimer's used to be diagnosed and how it's currently diagnosed with new technology is fascinating. There are three main methods of diagnosing Alzheimer's disease. Number one, I'm sure you could have guessed. We assess memory problems looking for signs of dementia and other behavioral symptoms. The second component of diagnosis is laboratory tests. These tests often include general physical assessments, urine tests, and maybe even blood testing. There is emerging research in blood testing looking for blood markers indicating the presence of Alzheimer's disease in the human body. Interestingly enough, in January to February of 2021, uh, the very first approved blood test for Alzheimer's called Precivity AD was cleared for widespread usage, which could really help with early detection of neurodegeneration. The third component of diagnosis is brain imaging. Now, these brain scans alone aren't enough to make a diagnosis because of overlap in what doctors consider normal age-related change in the brain and abnormal degenerative change. But the brain imaging can help to rule out other causes of dementia, distinguish between different types of degenerative brain disease, and narrow down the possibilities to Alzheimer's disease. The most common brain imaging technologies are MRI, CT scans, and PET scans. And I'm sure you've heard of many of these. MRI standing for magnetic resonance imaging, CT standing for computerized tomography, and PET standing for positron emission tomography. So we've officially been diagnosed with Alzheimer's, but is it reversible? What can we do? Are we helpless? Now these are all valid questions. So imagine you're in the mind of the Alzheimer's patient or the families of that patient. Despite having a portion of their world turned upside down, these are the questions racing through their mind and frantically thrown at the doctor who delivers this news. Alzheimer's can be a scary thing, so reasonably, the recipients of this news try to get all the answers they can, which, as scientific minds, I think that's something we can all admire. I'm sure I can speak on our behalf and say we all desire answers. It's human nature. We tend to be uncomfortable with the unknown. In the scientific realm, however, sometimes we desire answers a little too much. As a result, we become incapable of accepting the unknown. But that certainly is not us. And with Alzheimer's, unfortunately, there are lots of unknowns. Now, back to the question at hand. Is Alzheimer's disease reversible? As of right now, there is absolutely no cure for AD. So, once a person starts showing signs of dementia, memory loss, and various other impairments, there aren't any direct treatments that can stop or reverse them. 
However, there are treatments that may change the disease progression and drug or non-drug options that may help treat symptoms. So overall, AD is currently irreversible, but there are treatment options to help patients cope with symptoms and improve their quality of life. At this point, we've passed the preclinical period, we've been diagnosed, and we've personally faced the irreversibility of AD. Now we have to unwillingly enter the progression of the disease, starting with early stage Alzheimer's. Early stage Alzheimer's is the very first stage of AD categorizations, and it kind of segues right from the preclinical period. This is when it becomes clear to family and doctors that a patient is having significant trouble with their memory and thinking that impacts their daily functioning. The person with really early stage Alzheimer's may feel as if they are having consistent memory lapses. These lapses most commonly include forgetting familiar words, having conversation with much less ease, and really struggling to locate everyday objects. But the entire brain is literally degenerating as the disease progresses. The brain physically becomes smaller as synapses are degraded and plaque resulting from the beta amyloid protein covers the brain. The brain physically becomes smaller and smaller as synapses are degraded and plaque resulting from the beta amyloid protein covers the brain. It was often believed that the bigger your brain, the smarter you were. And although this isn't entirely true at all, it can be applied to 80 patients in some sense. Think about it, their brains are physically shrinking. As a result, their cognitive and physical functions significantly decline. So, in a sense, all normal brain functions are impaired by this disease. Executive functions, problem-solving, good memory, motivation, organization, expression of thoughts, alertness, and physical mobility are affected by AD. These are all difficulties with their episodic memory, which has become a very hallmark symptom of AD. And the early stage is towards the beginning of that impairment process. But these three stages really only indicate different levels of severity and how far the disease has progressed in a patient. Now, middle stage Alzheimer's is the supposed next step up from the early stage. This is typically the longest stage and can last for many years. Of course, during this time, dementia symptoms become much more pronounced due to the physiological progression of the disease. It's important to make a distinction, however, that in the middle stage, the AD patient can still participate in daily activities, but with assistance. The need for more intensive care increases throughout this stage. As we end the middle period and enter into the late stage, the mental and physical capabilities, of course, significantly decline. The impairment just becomes so severe. Some patients may require around-the-clock assistance with daily personal care, and although the person living with AD in the late stages may not be able to initiate engagement with others, know that AD patients can still benefit from this interaction. It is very important to note that as humans, we are cognitively designed to be around people. We are innately sociable people. We need human contact and interaction. So at least, I would say... One of the worst things for Alzheimer's patients and humans in general is a lack of human interaction and a lack of mental stimulation. There's even research being developed implying that isolation and a lack of mental stimulation as any person grows older 
can impact their risk of developing Alzheimer's disease. Pretty crazy stuff, isn't it? So, we obviously don't want to become isolated. Unfortunately, no matter how much isolation, Alzheimer's is terminal, meaning it is often the cause of death. But interestingly enough, it can be argued that Alzheimer's is not necessarily the cause of death. I don't agree with this at all, but let's look at the perspective. We know that pneumonia is a very common cause of death for AD patients because the impaired swallowing capabilities really allows for food or beverages to enter into the lungs where an infection can then begin. Many other very common causes due to physical decline include severe dehydration, malnutrition, falls, and other infections. And some argue that pneumonia, malnutrition, or another infection would be the cause of death of an Alzheimer's patient who happened to be malnourished or have an infection. But is that really why they died? Did they die because of an infection? Or did they die because of a decade-long disease leading to this infection or malnourishment? Some people really struggle to differentiate and define a clear cause of death. I would argue Alzheimer's disease resulted in either an infection or malnourishment, etc., leading to death by the results of the Alzheimer's impairments. Pneumonia and other things are simply the byproduct of Alzheimer's, not the other way around. No matter what the reason for death is, one thing that always remains constant is the fact that Alzheimer's disease is progressive, neurodegenerative, and unfortunately terminal. AD is some pretty serious stuff. I've worked with a lot of Alzheimer's patients, and over the years, I've seen the progression firsthand, alongside the toll it takes on not only the lives of the patients, but also the lives of families surrounding them. Now, I hate ending on a sad or negative note, so let's end with this. Thomas Fuller once said that health is not valued till sickness comes. When you think about it, he's not wrong. Not even in the slightest bit. I mean, there's some underlying messages in his words, however. He wants us as humans all to understand that we are, for the most part, in control of our own health. So let's take charge. Let us not allow ourselves to reach a point of severe sickness. Let us value and truly prioritize our health while we still can. With that I say, there is no need to obsess about disease, worry about sickness, or fear that there may never be a cure or truly effective treatment for Alzheimer's disease. With phenomenal minds emerging from the youth and innovative spirits coming to the forefront of scientific advancement, I truly believe there is hope. Thank you for listening to Brain Facts with Samuel Salama. I hope you will subscribe so you can receive the latest podcasts and remain engaged throughout the weeks. I'll see you next time.